Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Ben Crystal, actor, author, and creative producer. I first met Ben when we worked together on the George Silver audiobook, and Ben is well known as an explorer of original practices in the theatre. He's possibly best known for original pronunciation, which is, of course, what I hired him to do for the George Silver audiobook. But as you will hear in the interview coming up, it goes way beyond the just how you talk. So without further ado, Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be here with you. So whereabouts in the world are you? I'm currently on the Isle of Anglesey in North Wales, where I've been for much of the last 14, 15 months or so. Okay, an island, the Isle of Anglesey in North Wales. I imagine that's very beautiful and rather remote. It is both of those things. I think um, the only thing I could have castigated it with before the last couple of years was that it's very isolated and I've been very grateful for that in the last uh, well, in the year of 2020 at least yeah it's just just off the northwest of Wales uh, linked to the main uh, land of the UK by two bridges and um, beautiful beautiful island and naturally socially isolated there's uh, there's a lot there's a lot of good coast here that's for sure <laughs> fantastic uh, so how did you get into this line of work acting and original pronunciation and that sort of thing? Well, I started out like many Shakespeareans, because I should say that um, I've really been working with Shakespeare for most of my adult life, uh, hating Shakespeare in school. Uh, and it wasn't until I acted in a Shakespeare play for the first time at 17 or so that the world really broke open to me. It made sense for the first time in my life in a way you know, on a stage in a way that it had never done, just reading it in a book and, and especially in a classroom. And I I never looked back from that was the point when I wanted to be an actor. And I spent most of my time in university dodging my degree and, and spending all of my time in the theatre on campus in Lancaster University. And then came down to London for a, a, a sort of master's, a postgraduate year in in acting at the Drama Studio London. And that was where I was taught by Patrick Tucker, whose work with exploring the secrets, as he calls it, of the first folio. This is the, the first major edition of Shakespeare's plays that was published seven years after his death. And Patrick taught that these plays are actors' manuals uh, right. that sh teach his actors, who had very little rehearsal time, how to not just perform, but how to stage these plays. And that was the beginning of my fascination with historically inspired performance. I suppose you could say the other way of putting it would be original practices. And of course, this was just as the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre was opening in the south bank of the, uh, of the River Thames in London. So there was quite a, a renaissance, I suppose, of explorations in original practices because, of course, you know, Shakespeare's Globe is an original practice exploration or experiment in architecture um, and then within that building they started to do all sorts of explorations in terms of costume and um, music and of course fights and um, and and latterly started to explore original pronunciation 
my father was invited to to lead those explorations, and I wasn't so so interested in the sound itself until he came back from rehearsals one day and said that the master of movement had come in and sat down next to them, and uh, they they were rehearsing Romeo and Juliet, but they've been rehearsing it in received pronunciation, which is of course was Gosh, English. the standard, yeah, for doing yeah. Shakespeare in the twentieth century. And they were just doing three performances in original pronunciation. And she came in for the first go in OP and said, my goodness, they're moving differently. And that's what really ah. caught my attention because I'd seen so much Shakespeare in RP, in received pronunciation, where everyone was standing very stiffly and speaking yeah. this beautiful sound, but not moving like human beings. And I spent a lot of time with Theatre de Complicité doing workshops and lots of physical work, uh, Lecoq-based stuff. Uh, from the Lecoq Theatre School in Paris. And they would move beautifully, but n weren't so great actively with their voices. So aside from fight work, where is the, where does the two come together? And, and the idea that this accent, this original accent, was fusing movement and sound in a way that, that was new, that's, that's when I really got on board the historically inspired performance or original practices train. Right, and... Okay, just going back a little bit to Shakespeare in school. Sure. It reading a Shakespeare play in like an Arden edition, one of these modern editions, to me it's a bit like, I don't know, studying animals by looking at their DNA. <laughs> it is you, you don't get a sense of what an elephant swinging its trunk around is really like by sequencing its genome. Absolutely. And and it I you know, I, I my degree's in English lit, so I'm, you know, I'm I'm used to reading all sorts of different kinds of text but i always hated reading plays right <laughs> it just it just doesn't make you know so, some bits of it will work as poetry but just sitting and reading a play to me always just it just felt dead on the I, page I completely agree and i think apart from a very few select band of folks who were able to read in shakespeare's time i think it was very much the same for them and, right. You know, I say in, uh, I wrote a book shortly after working at the Globe um, in 2008 called Shakespeare on Toast. And I say in that, you know, reading a play, it may seem a little bit more normal to, 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 to many of us out here uh, in this century, but we wouldn't read an episode of Coronation Street. Right. You know, why would you, having seen it? And to do a degree, though, that was true for, for the Elizabethans and Jacobeans. But, you know, your elephant analogy, I transpose to uh, a car analogy, you know, would you rather be handed the, the engine manual to a Ferrari or would you like to drive it? You know, would you, would you like yeah. to read the recipe of a great meal or would you like to be taken to the restaurant? Would you like to read the score of Mozart's Requiem or would you like to sit and hear it live? You know, why yeah. would you want to interact with a thing that's written for a very select group of very well craft, craft fueled men because men were women weren't allowed to act in Shakespeare's time that were singularly skilled in interpreting these pieces and knew as it were as Patrick Tucker you know suggested the the color-coded map that's that's written into these these works for them to to sort of say oh he wants us to do this at this point you know without that key without that experience without you know without any sort of the, the 10,000 hours that comes with craft whether it's reading a musical score or a food recipe or an engine manual, you're not going to get a sense of 
to come back to your analogy, how that trunk swings and what the smells smell like and, and what the beast feels like when you put your hand on it, you know, and feel its heart beating. And yeah. uh, I think it's the same with, with, with plays, of course, uh, especially with these plays that, that are so rich and full of, of human life, which, which is, of course, his, his, one of his primary skills as a playwright. Yeah, so I imagine that this study of, the, of how the language was spoken led you to change your interpretation of some of the passages. Was that? Yes, in ways that I couldn't possibly have anticipated. Um, there are some obvious ways in that one of the ways we know what the accent sounds like or sounded like is from the rhymes. You know, mm -hmm. two thirds of Shakespeare's sonnets don't rhyme anymore. And as uh, if you know very much about uh, sonnets, they're written in alternating rhyme structures, finishing with a rhyming couplet. And yeah, two thirds of them don't rhyme in a modern accent, in, in modern received pronunciation accent anyway, the, the, the standard accent that people expect Shakespeare to be spoken in. So something's changed, right? Or, or Shakespeare sure. was a bad poet. Um, yeah. But we know that. That's probably not so likely. Probably not true, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember coming across this problem, you know, when I was studying Shakespeare long ago, that, yes, like proved and loved, that's not a rhyme. I, I, well, absolutely. Um, and, and so, you know, linguists like my father would look at these sort of uh, half rhymes or failed rhymes and go, well, chances are it would have either been proved and lived or loved and or proved and loved. And yeah. you go through the rest of the canon and work out that it's very likely the latter rather than the former, proved and loved. And, um, and that's one of the ways that we, we know what it sounded like. So it, it was a great joy to get to the end of a, a sonnet, having rhymed beautifully all the way through and then it to end with a lovely rhyme. Or, you know, looking at one of the rhyming plays like Midsummer Night's Dream, or Richard II. And there's some, it's a bit like, I think of it a little bit like, uh, I imagine, or like a master uh, watchmaker or something, you know, the satisfaction when you just click that last bit of cog into place and everything starts running beautifully. There's a, an inherent rhythm, and I'm very aware of the fight analogies here, but when <laughs> things are clicking well, there's, there's mm -hmm. a role that, um, that you can feel and and without those those bumpy obstacles in the way there is a, a slide as it were to to slip down when you're when you're speaking the verse that or that when you're speaking the poetry that those rhymes really help so that was really nice but then there were other things i was invited by the british library they were doing a an exhibition where they had the one of the first editions of richard iii underneath this glass cage and uh, a spotlight on it. It was open to that opening speech. Now is the winter of our discontent. Make mm -hmm. glorious summer by this son of York. And the idea was that you could go up to the book and put the headphones on and hear the speech spoken in the original accent. So, of course, I said yes, because it was I was in my yeah. late 20s, early 30s. At that point, I thought, oh, I'm never going to get to play Richard III. Of course, I'll, I'll go and do it. I start doing the speech, having... Uh, you know, run it by my dad a few times to make sure that I was in the ballpark of the sound. And um, halfway through, you get to this line where Richard said, says, um, I then curtailed by this fair proportion, cheated a feature by dissembling nature. Um, and it's, it's such a powerful line, right? Because Richard feels that the world or nature with a capital N has been unfair to him, uh, cheating him. 
uh, of, of a fair proportion and cheating him of, of regular looking features. And you could argue that that's the whole, that's his soul, right? That's the crux yeah. of, of, of the thing that drives him or at least the, the crux of, of his life that's pushed him to this place or one of them anyway. Now in received pronunciation, it's cheated of feature by dissembling nature. I mean, you know, my, my voice is modified received pronunciation, but still. Um, and in original pronunciation, it goes, I that have been curtailed by this fair proportion, chated a fetter by dissembling nature. And all of a sudden, you, can, you know, I was, the hairs on the back of my arms went up and everyone else is in the room because the rhythm suddenly canters. It, it, it yeah. ratchets up a notch because of the, the nature of those short vowels all slipping together like that. So... It was the first time we realized, my goodness, you know, we know that Shakespeare explores rhymes with this sound and we know that he makes puns with this sound that are lost. And I don't think anyone quite appreciated that he was also mucking about with the rhythm of the poetry, too. And I think that that was a real another real eye opener and game changer for me, just the degrees to which these these explorations in how it was done can open up new pathways for how for the way we think about these works and how we can can do them they, they these original practices these historically inspired explorations they really can offer bridges to the future not just um dead ends to the past i think right and yeah of course i'm listening to all of this and filtering it through my historical swordsmanship filter because yeah. literally everything is filtered through of course through swords and I have many times come across like these similar moments where you things just click into place and suddenly things that were difficult become easy. <laughs> and that's, that's not proof that the interpretation is correct, but it is a whole lot of corroborating evidence to suggest that it might be. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Huh. Um, so... Okay, it's, we, it's we, almost like you. Well, I don't know if you feel this too, but it it feels you, you're in practice, you're in play, you're exploring with like-minded folk who have similar degrees of experience and skill sets and interest, and you discover something in that moment of play and think, you know, neither were pro expecting, neither were planning, and it almost a feeling like you've you're, you've stumbled onto a, I don't know. Let's swing to Indiana Jones here. Onto Always. a onto a uh, um, uh, you know a, a a rock or a lever or something a handle that you think was completely innocuous and you you've just sort of pushed it and it's opened up this whole new idea and you feel oh we're not discovering something new we're discovering something old here right and you get a sense of the life of the thing as it was done yes absolutely absolutely. So, okay, so we talked a little bit about original pronunciation, but that is just the tip of the historically inspired performance iceberg. Mm -hmm. So and I know absolutely nothing about historical staging of Elizabethan theatre, and I'm guessing that most of the listeners know nothing about it either. So what else do you do in the theatre to recreate performances as they may have been done? Well... Let's start with uh, the Shakespeare's Globe Theatres on the south mm -hmm. bank of the River Thames, where we've got an outdoor theatre and an indoor theatre that have been, uh, as best as budget and understanding has allowed, 
been designed architecturally to mirror as close as possible the dynamics of 400 years ago. And, uh, and I'll come back to the point that most of us practitioners don't have access to that kind of space. Um, (laughs) but, uh, in a very broad sense, the outdoor space has a couple of dynamics, which really change the way that you play and perform and produce insofar as, uh, the outdoor space has no roof. Uh, when they perform in the evening time, they mimic the lighting to replicate daylight. That means that contrary to a 20th or 21st century standard theatre Shakespeare experience where the audience sits in the dark and the actors stand lit on the stage and act into the gloom, mm-hmm. uh, there's a shared light, which means that if I come out as Hamlet, I can see you standing there or sitting there in front of me. I can see you, whether you're happy or sad or enjoying yourself or distracted or bored or sleeping or texting. Mm -hmm. And I can talk to you and I can say to you as Hamlet, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should kill Claudius? And uh, ideally, hopefully, you'll be so into the story and, and with me, the protagonist, that I might even provoke you to respond. And there's actually a dialogue, you know, between us. That as right. storyteller and storytelly, uh, we're on a journey together. We're go and you're because you're more. There's more of a symbiotic relationship. You're more likely to laugh when I make a joke, and you're more likely to cry when I die. Um, it's, it's, so it's closer to Panto in a way. Well, where there's that constant, there's that interaction, the expected interaction with the audience. And I, I should say that there's we're not. And we never will be sure about the level of realism that they were performing at 400 years ago. And some people, some people say, you know, that some of the back and forthness that uh, is is written into the texts as well. I should say, um, we at least in this country, one of the closest parallels we have is pantomime. But that I think that's where it stops in terms of that symbiotic uh, back and forth. Uh, or in terms of that dialogue that's encouraged. And um, I, it, we, from what we can tell, the levels of realism were as profound as we imagine them to be, rather than up into the, the heights of slapstick and, and um, ridiculousness. Although there was certainly both of those things in, in, at the time too. Um, so you've got this shared light so, and you've got this journey that we're all going on together. You've also got um, the two pillars that hold up the roof of the stage. Uh, so there's a roof above the stage, but not above the rest of the, the you know, the groundlings, the people standing around the stage. Um, and those pillars mean that there's no one place on the globe stage where you can be seen by every member of the audience all the time. Uh, but what they also inspire is a sort of figure of eight eternity um, symbol in that you as you walk around the pillars and across the center of them and back around the other side of the pillar and back across the center, you transcribe this figure of eight in your movement that, that allows everybody to, to see you and you to see them. And having done that, you can take the, uh, the, the God spot, the center of the, it's not quite the center, but the, the main sort of strongest part of the stage. And the audience give, get the impression of being able to see you, even if they can't, can't quite. Um, there's a, so there's a movement quality that comes out of that sort of architecture. But of course, you know, that's still our 20th, 21st century heads wanting to be seen. 
or indeed as audience members wanting to see, whereas uh, Shakespeare's audience was said to go and hear a play rather than see a play. They were, it was oh, much more I wasn't aware of that. To, 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 to hear what was going on. Indeed, that's where the word audience comes from, right? They would audit right. a play. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a shift in understanding. There might be a bit of a pushback, both either by directors building the stage out into the yard and wanting everyone to be seen, but listening to the true nature of the building and and sitting comfortably in that place, both as performers and as audience members, that that sight is not as important as sound is quite a twist for our modern heads. Yeah. But the, I think the listening is the really key thing. And and um, uh, again, uh, that sort of tacks on to the, um, the 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 point I was about to make earlier about why about what happens if you don't have access to that kind of space. Um, but then the other space that they have is an indoor space. Uh, it's closely modelled on the Blackfriars Theatre that Shakespeare uh, wrote his late plays for, plays like The Tempest and Winter's Tale and Cymbeline. Um, it's uh, candlelit. And for anyone that has ever read a bedtime story by candlelight, the hush, mm-hmm. the atmosphere, the sleepiness, um, the way that the eyes work differently, even with a full complement of candles, there's a diffuse quality that comes with candlelight. Uh, that inspires shiny costume and um, sharper eye makeup and a different quality of hand movement. Um, also, if you're using practicals, if you're if you're holding a candle, let's say you're you're in the middle of Macbeth's house in the middle of night and you've just killed Duncan and all the candles are out apart from the one that you're carrying, then you also become your own lighting designer. Uh, so there's all sorts of really interesting qualities that come out by exploring. To just these two very basic different dynamics uh, in the way that Shakespeare and his company acted 400 years ago. Um, now, let's say you don't have access to those spaces. And I founded the Shakespeare Ensemble and we go around the world performing Shakespeare using these modern adaptations of original practices. We have performed in some very beautiful old buildings and theatres in Japan. Um, most of the time our work is community-based in that we go to somewhere that has never heard Shakespeare before and we listen to the environment that we're in and we respond to the things that that are important to them, I suppose, or at least to to, to the resonances that we pick up from from the cultures we find ourselves in. And I think that listening thing is, is the key. You've got 16 actors 400 years ago that spend all day, every day working with each other, with the same playwright in the same spaces and come and go to a degree, the same audiences. They didn't rehearse very much, nor did they need to because they were so good at listening to each other, to each other's play, to the audience, to their right. master's voice. They it's were like a jazz band. Exactly like a jazz band. Exactly so. And so we... And I think, you know, the best original, modern original practice explorations are the ones that listen to the world around them. So, for example, okay, men weren't allowed, uh, women weren't allowed to act in Shakespeare's time. Well, you know, we, we change that. We, anyone of any gender can, can work in, in original practices in, in, with us. Um, we do use uh, cue scripts in that uh, we don't each hold a copy of the play. Uh, we only hold the parts that we're exploring. Uh, like a, a modern orchestra. Um, right. And, and that's how they used to do it. 
And that's exactly how they used to do it. In fact, some of Shakespeare's plays were reassembled. Um, There weren't full copies of the play to be able to be published, so they had to reassemble them from actors' cue parts that they recollected and uh, put together back again like a jigsaw puzzle. Right. And um, and then we look at some of the old uh, sketches of uh, which aren't there aren't very many of, and there's an old sketch of Titus Andronicus, and it's it's confusing to a lot of scholars because uh, you've got actors standing around in Elizabethan costume, you've got other actors standing around in Greek costume, and uh, you sort of get the impression that that putting together a show was a, a degree of grab whatever you can to help tell the story, right. you know, whatever works. And so we also work with very few props and costumes, just enough to help tell the story. We're usually rocking up in whatever we're wearing that day. And um, I I suppose without the resources of a massive theatre, historically inspired performance or original, modern original practice performance is, is for me anyway, uh, about listening to your environment, listening to each other, and taking the resonances and echoes that are tangible in in terms of grab whatever you can to help tell the story the best way you can but don't fill it with things that you don't need you don't need a huge costume budget you don't need a huge set budget what you need is brilliant wordsmiths who can activate and fire the imagination of the people that are listening even if they don't speak the language that you speak like one of the the comments that we had from a, a mountain community in japan was we didn't understand 99% of what you said, but we fully understood the story because communication oh, wow. of heart is your craft. And I think that's the core. That's fabulous. That's the core of what Shakespeare and his crew were about. You know, we, we love these beautiful new buildings because we don't build stuff like that anymore. But And whilst the building was important to them, it was a space in which their, their, their very simple craft was, yeah, communication of heart, inspiring and provoking imagination. Right. I, I'm just thinking like Midsummer Night's Dream, you have the group mm-hmm. of players. Yeah. And they're, they're just practicing in a wood somewhere. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. They're, by they're by the practicing. Duke's tree. Right. Exactly. They're not practicing in some fancy rehearsal hall with mics and lights. They're, no. They're just basically doing it in the forest. Exactly. And, and actually, you know, we, that's one of, two instances of rehearsal in Shakespeare's plays and and some people try and take it quite literally but what we and there's a, a scholar that worked out the time frame of, of the of the hours available to, to Shakespeare's actors mm-hmm. and um, they perform every afternoon um, around two o'clock best best sunlight yep. until about four or five depending on the length of the play you don't want to be performing that much longer because it's getting darker, but also people have been standing and, you know, people's attention spans, all that kind of thing. But, um, and then you know, clean up, sort the, the play out for the next day, go to the tavern, go and be with your family, whatever, get there the next morning. And what are you going to rehearse? Are you going to rehearse the dialogue bits? Well, you know, Richard and Cuthbert know their stuff, so we don't need to rehearse that stuff. Are you going to rehearse the speeches? Well, the, that's the actor's part, right? You know, they've been, they know that bit. They don't need to rehearse that bit. So what do you rehearse? And the idea is that you rehearse, they probably just rehearse the complicated bits, which would either right. be the, the, the scenes where there's a lot of people moving around and you want to make sure you're not going to bump into each other, like um, the lobby scene after Duncan's been killed in Macbeth and everyone comes out and wakes up and rings the bell and, and lots of mm. entrances and exits, that sort of thing. 
You're going to rehearse the dances, perhaps, if you want to create a new dance or refresh one because you haven't done the play in a while. And you're probably going to look at the fights. Yes. I knew you'd be happy about this. My next, (laughs) literally, my next question was going to be, okay, this is all great and fascinating and lovely. And I know a whole bunch of people are going to be super excited about this, but we do have to get to the sword fights eventually. Exactly so. All right. So tell us about the fights. Well, um, again, you know, I'm going to piece this together from what little we know and what we've explored. Um, The anecdote that's very common and very likely is we haven't got much time. We're all pretty good at waving a stick around. And, right. and of course, you know, as, as you and I joked about when we first met, the, the main difference between what you do and what we do is we try and miss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and, and, and what I understand anyway, a lot of, of, of your folk are doing, are trying to hit more. Yes. Um, but notwithstanding that slight distinction, uh, let's say you're doing, um, uh, the new play, we haven't got much time. Let's take a bit of Mercutio and Tybalt and let's take a bit of, I don't know, um, some other rapier. Fight. Hamlet and Laertes. Exactly. Right? A bit of Hamlet and Laertes and we'll tack on a new ending and we've got ourselves a new fight. Yeah. There's a very good chance they would have been able to piece together new fights from old. And then right. the and- other thing is, go on. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, I've I've put on fights for various events many times right and when i'm using my students we can choreograph a minute long sword fight in about five minutes by just tacking together drills that they already know and we work on the opening and we work on the ending and the middle bit is padding which is basically just drills repeated perfect it's it's super simple and it takes perfect minutes exactly everyone, everyone who studies with me seeing that fight will recognize the bits. Of course. But most people don't study with me and the, you know, the event is for some, you know, I don't know, some company or some theater or whatever. And yeah, the audience, they have no idea. They're seeing it for the first time. And yeah, they'll they be like, oh, that was cool. And that death at the end was great. And that's what we're looking for. <laughs> and, and I imagine because that middle bit is, is, is padding or, you know, you know, drills, as you say, that mm-hmm. there's a degree of, of playfulness and, and an unrehearsed sort of fresh rural yeah. quality, right? So sure. we've we, we've taken a, a little step beyond that in that um, all good all good actors in stage combat with rapiers or swords have been trained or practiced in their uh, uh, one two three four five six reverse six whatever however you yeah. refer to it. So if we if we know what we're going to start with and we know what we're going to finish with. And we're listening to each other so well because we've been playing together for 10 years every day. Then to what Defense. degree within the one to seven can we just play and it be improvised? Now, of course, you know, you, the, the golden rule of modern stage combat is, is do not ever not improvise away from the choreography. Yeah. But then, of course, you, if you're, chore- if you've choreographed, then there's an expectation of what comes next. But if you're playing, then you just play, right? It's, yeah. it's it's really simple. So I think that's that's been the most exciting stuff that we've we've done is is when the play that happens in the fights mirrors the play because our, all of our movement is improvised. We never block a show. There's no time to. We just listen to the architecture and listen to each other and play in the space hmm. around a sequence of set ideas of movement in terms of you know if there's two of you. 
then you take turns in the god spot. If there's three of you, start making triangles and, and so on and so forth. Um, so that, that there are soft guidelines rather than rules within the, the movement uh, at play. And yeah, when we've explored fights in a similar way, it really works. It works really well. Yeah, it works really well when you fence with each other many times. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I have, I have also choreographed fights where we choreograph the beginning and choreograph the end. And in the middle, we just fence, but no, we're not supposed to hit each other. So fence at a level where you know that your partner is going to be able to make the parry because if you hit them, then that's the end of the fight. And yeah. that's not what, you know, that's not the choreographed ending. And then we have like a, a signal between the blades to say, okay, now we go into the final bit. Perfect. Beautiful. And, and we'll never know, but from everything that I've learned about how Shakespeare and his crew worked, and as I keep saying, you know, the time constraints, that feels, that really seems to resonate with, with, with what we understand of that early modern practice. Yeah. Were they using like stage swords, like blunted? foils or what have you uh we don't know but of okay. course we do he he wrote different types of fights you know sure. uh, edgar and edmund's fight at the end of lear is broadsword rather than than rapier yeah good old english stuff absolutely Silver would be proud absolutely yeah well absolutely um and uh uh and, and you know i, th I think just if, uh, not to um preempt any bridging here um, some of the, the most joyful bits of reading Silver were the ones that resonated and echoed with comments, especially by Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet, about uh, you know preferences towards different types of. Okay, uh, okay. Well, by all means, by all means, be specific. So, like, my next question would be, what do you think of Silver's paradoxes? Now that you've read the whole thing out loud into the <laughs> microphone, um, and again, you could be hundred percent honest. If you don't like the book, that's perfectly okay. But I am very curious to, to see what you thought of it in whatever that means to you. <laughs> A lot of different feelings. I loved it. Go on then. Uh, I loved reading it. Um, mm -hmm. What a pedant. Yes. Uh, so similar <laughs> to so many authors of the time that um, it published these, these pamphlets that were essentially mm -hmm. soapboxes of one kind or another. Right. Um, the difference, I think, is because of course you know one of the first references to Shakespeare was by a pamphleteer pedant that was railing about um, all sorts of things, but included a rail about the upstart crow William Shakespeare um, in in Shakespeare's very early career. Um, but the difference, I think, is that Silver, you know, he's 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 the craftsman; he knows his stuff, and I think the harder bits to read were the bits that where he's really getting into fine detail going off of on one and forgets to break things down into sentences right. yes um and i had a you know there, there's a a degree of an artistic interpretation there right do you try to make that make more sense or do you try to allow that to be as it was written in that it may not make complete sense because Quite frankly, there were bits where he could have tightened it up or made, you know, edited it down, yeah, or, yeah. or what have you. He, he didn't have a great editor, but then <laughs> pretty much, pretty much nobody back then did. Well, absolutely, um, and and yet there are times when his flow 
is extraordinary and inc- and mm. not, you know not to take my own name in vain but crystal clear um, <laughs> and, and i think that's yeah. true within some of his descriptions of uh, technique um although i think my very favorite bit is his story at the end where the voice seems yes. to it's like he takes the leash off himself and i was able to really sink into his character a little bit more um he, he seemed to sort of you know there's a lot of restraint in the in the dedication in the epistle at the beginning of course right he's um, addressing you know, the earl of essex you know, absolutely one's best behavior absolutely and um and obviously there's a lot of care and pedantic care and passion that comes out in the core of the book um i think you get a few flecks of character here and there throughout it and and in some of the marginalia but that story the story of cheese at the end really seems to you hear him and that's always a real joy because there's something about reading an original pronunciation that um and bearing in mind i haven't heard the um the the modern accent version of, of this book um recorded by a, a very fine colleague. Um, so I don't know how his version of George Silver sounds. Well, I'll, be, I'll send it to you when it's done. Don't worry. I'll look forward to it, yeah. But there's certainly a degree to which accessing these sounds, like I said earlier about Shakespeare, you, there's, a, there's a degree to which you feel like you're accessing the cadence and rhythm of the speaker or the writer. And right. um, so I feel like I got a cut close to the man and um he's you know there certainly sounds i'd like to have a drink with the guy at the end uh i'm not sure yeah. i'd want to spend too much time i'd be way out of my depth i know you i would give that ticket to you to sit in the pub and listen to him harp on about uh all the different uh, times and manners and yeah well you know he wrote a second book called brief instructions upon my paradoxes of defense which yes. is Basically, explaining all the stuff he failed to explain properly in the first book. That's why, that's why I'm really hoping that the campaign picks up a bit and does really well. So I have enough money to pay you to do the second book. It would be a nice compliment to the two. Certainly, if it, it, would. If it fills in. Although, having flicked through it, it's, uh, his uh, sense of brief is different to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But um, I had a question, if I may turn the tables. Yeah, please. I'd love to hear a little bit about from from someone that I imagine anyway that understands so much more of the the, the true meaning of the things that he's describing. In other words, I, I imagine that you and your colleagues would be able to look at paradoxes and mm-hmm. go, okay, so he says this here, so we move this hand here. So this is what this movement is what he's talking about. And yeah. now we understand. Like, like what is garden fight and what is variable fight. And, For example. Those things, yeah. The things that he describes so particularly and so carefully, I imagine that you and your colleagues are able to get it up on its feet and and understand a way of fighting that's lost? Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. That's, that's, that's the... Um, okay, to be strictly fair, my area of expertise isn't George Silver's. I mean, I've, I've done... George Silver's stuff. I mean, I, I started like 25 years ago and I got sort of seduced by the Italians. Silver would hate me for that. But <laughs> so for most of the last 20 years, most of the stuff I've been practicing has been Italian. Um, but yeah, I mean, Silver, if you include his brief instructions, then there is a fairly straightforward um, 
path to actually recreating that as a fencing system that you can actually apply against itself and against rapier fences and against, you know, anything else that's likely to occur in the 1500s. That's incredible. And and it's uh, effective. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very straightforward. Was, so he was, um, from your point of view, right in his admonition? Um, okay. <laughs> okay. No. <clears throat> I cannot speak as to how Italian fencing was being taught in the 16th century in London. Right. Okay, we don't have very many sources for that. And the one we do have that's in the most detail is Saviolo's brief. Um, ah, yeah. Saviolo's His Practice. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very difficult to get a good working interpretation of Saviolo because he doesn't describe things in a way that makes it easy to reproduce. Okay. Right? But if we go to... Well, there are a bunch of other Italian sources of that period which go into a lot more detail about how to stand and how to strike and all the various things you should do. So reproducing a working fencing system, uh, if we look at Italian rapier, obviously mm-hmm. we say 1600, thereabouts, it is, it's not quite as Silver describes it. For instance, they use the blow a lot, mm. right? He's like, oh, there is no, there's no cutting with a rapier. Well, every rapier source that we have includes cuts. Right. Like, like without exception. Mm. Okay, I can't think of an exception. Um, so, but then he's, he may be describing how it's fenced in the fencing schools. And it could be that when you were fencing your friends with rapiers, you mm. weren't allowed to cut because maybe you'd break a finger or whatever. Mm. And the protective equipment they had was okay for thrusts, but not okay for cuts, for right. instance. Um, and then perhaps they were wearing different protective equipment if they were wearing any at all, um, for doing, um, like broadsword stuff. So, or what Silver would call the short sword. And, you know, funnily enough, Silver's short sword has a bloody long blade. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if you follow his instructions about how to hold it, mm. it's about 36 inches on me. Okay. That's a three foot blade. And sometimes maybe 40 inches. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so actually I have a tape measure right here. I'll just, yeah, <laughs> on me, on me, it is 40 inches. Sort of arm length, isn't right? it? Which is, okay, my rapier has a 42-inch blade, but it probably ought to have a 45-inch blade. Wow. So we're not talking about, we're not talking about a really short sword. Mm. We're mm. talking about something that, you know, when you look at the, there's, there are only a couple of pictures in the book, and one of them is silver showing you how long the sword should be. And when you measure that on yourself, well, on me, it's about 41 inches. So, mm. uh, so, you know, it, it, I think, I think a lot of his, his dislike is that the way it, Italian rapier was being taught in London in that time mm. with the thrust. It's very difficult to fence and not get properly injured. Whereas if you're doing, for example, sword and buckler with sharp swords, as I've done, yeah, you can fence your friends sharp on sharp and nobody gets hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you're, the way you're moving, you're not, you're not committing to these explosive long lunges where if something goes wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. You know, if your, if your friend accidentally sticks his face in the way of your point, then 
it's over. Whereas the the manner of moving and the overall sort of style of action with the sword and buckler is a lot it's a lot less committed to a single action. This is this is so interesting because there's a there's a point and I can't quite remember where it was in paradoxes where it's like where Shakespeare lifted the description and gave it to Mercutio when Mercutio is is complaining about you know all the, you know, the dear yeah. reversos and staccatos and all that. Yes. yes. Um, the the problem is of course that silver paradoxes in 1599 and everyone thinks that Romeo and Juliet was around 1594. But right, so it could well be that sh- that silver borrowed it from Shakespeare. Could be, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, um, why I not? Mean, if Silver was a gentleman, he'd go to the theatre, he would hear this. That even may have inspired him to write the book. Well, absolutely. Or vice versa, and we've got the dating of Romeo and Juliet wrong, which, which some people think. But it, it's it's such a lovely light shedding on, you know, most people would be like, oh, yeah, so this is the bit where Mercutio complains about fight styles. Well, Why? You know, and it's yeah. not—it's not just the flashiness of it. There's—it's you know—it's ironic that he, you know, hearing you talk, then that there's an inherent danger in that other style. That means that if you're on the street as a young rake, uh, and you're 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 fighting with your friends and your frenemies, then there's one style that means everyone gets to go home, and there's another style that means that you don't necessarily get to go home. And of course, shortly yeah. afterwards, he doesn't get to go home. So you know, yeah. this, the, this is the sort of thing that excites me about working with. And collaborating with folks that really know how things were because it can so sharpen up and open up yeah. how, we, how we do things today. I, I need to go read Romeo and Juliet again. It's been a long time since I last read it. But yes, <laughs> I, shall, I, shall, I shall give that some thought. Um, now, okay, there are a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know we're running a little close to time and you have like stuff to do, which is probably very interesting. So I'll <laughs> try not to keep you from it. Um, so, first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, other, wow. Gosh, well, um, I'm, I found myself as a creative producer in the last 10, 15 years. And one of the things that I think I'm, appear to be good at is acting on great ideas and making them happen and um you know i think the curse of creative production in that respect being a creative producer is that you're beset with them all the time so i I was walking past uh an old dilapidated pub yesterday and thought oh god I i know exactly how i'd be able to turn that into a success uh i don't have time I've got to get back to the Shakespeare <laughs> stuff. Oh, I've got yeah. this great idea for this, that, and the other. Um, and most of them I get to. Um, I haven't moved to Japan yet. Uh, and I've always said that I would like to. <laughs> okay. But, but I don't, uh, I don't suppose that counts. Yeah. That totally I, counts. Moving to, moving to Japan. If that's your great idea you'd like to do, then. No, I, well, the, the greatest idea that I think I've had, I am acting on it. And, um, I think it ties into the question which I think you're going to ask me next uh, about what, you know, well, I'll leave you to ask. Well, I'll ask you. Okay. If you had a huge sum of money to spend on improving historical performance worldwide, how would you spend it? 
So I think the two questions fused together for me. I'm building a huge project for the Shakespeare North Playhouse, which is just finishing being built in Knowsley in Prescott, the borough of Knowsley, the town of Prescott, just on the outskirts of uh, the metropolitan borough of of Merseyside, just just ever so slightly south of uh, the Lancashire border. They're building a new original practice theatre space. It's loosely based on... um, a similar sort of design to the indoor playhouse that Shakespeare's mm-hmm. Globe built. And I have, I'm building a project for the first year of its life, which will involve doing, uh, will basically mimicking the rhythm of Shakespeare's crew putting on a different play. Not every day, but um, every week. And um, we're going to need a lot of money to make that happen. Okay. That is the best idea I think, or one of the, the, the biggest ideas that I've ever had, certainly the biggest project I've ever built. And, um, well, we'll see whether or not I make it happen. <laughs> so, okay, well, well, take take a moment to sell it. Like, what what will that give people that they don't already have? There's an idea that Shakespeare and his actors, who were performing together for 20 years, I mean, just think about that for a second. Yeah. I mean, think about your best friend and how long you've known them and how well you know them and how you can intuit to a degree what they're thinking and feeling. Now think about your best colleague, your work colleague, the person that you've worked with for longest and how having worked together, if you're you're lucky enough to get to be with them every day, how, again, you can intuit the way they might react to things. Now think about that in terms of play. And in terms of performing, and in terms of performing in the same space with those same people, and there's not just one, but there's many of them, and you're also entertaining and bringing delight and light to people's mm. lives. And, and oftentimes those same people, that returning audience. And so a bit like modern audiences might get to feel like they know the actors in their soap operas that they love and they have a relationship right. with them, but you're in the same space as these people day in, day out. And you're working so fast, you're putting on different plays at least every week. Shakespeare and his actors were said to have 40 plays in their heads at any one time. Wow. And what does that mean in terms of memory? You know, if you don't have very much rehearsal time, how quickly can you raise a play? Now, we've explored raising plays in uh, a couple of weeks using original practice methods. We've explored raising them in five days quite a lot. Uh, we've done three day raisings and we've done a single day raising. And the biggest question has been, yes, but surely you can't memorize the part of Hamlet in 24 hours. And my response to that surely isn't the airplane joke, uh, but it is, well, we just don't know what the memory muscle is capable of if it's been well-trained like any other muscle. If you take it to the gym, and work it at, make it work, You it will strengthen and gain. And I've yeah, been on a, a personal mission in that I've learned uh, lead Shakespeare parts in two weeks and in five mm-hmm. days and in three days. And on our Japan tour in 2019, I learned the part of Claudius in Hamlet in, um, it, well, on the, on the way to the gig in six hours on a train. Wow, that's great. So, but, it, you know, people can, can memorize... People can memorize an entire deck of cards. So you shuffle a deck of cards and, you know, you deal them out one at a time. 
and they watch you do that in about a minute. Yep. And they have the whole deck memorized. Absolutely. The Tony right. Kazan memory palace, all those kind of techniques. Right. They, and, and they talk about, because we're working with neuroscientists for this project as well. Mm-hmm. We talk about memory markers and the things that facilitate memorization like that, like keeping so many things the same, but just changing some things every now and again. So you've got this great performance space that doesn't have much set in it. How do you change yeah, the space past. ever so slightly to, to allow memory markers so that you, in the haze of the 30th di- different play that month, how do you go, oh, yeah, that's this play, not that play, because there's a particular type of hanging or whatever. Yeah, and, but also it's like like speaking a language. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm in Italy speaking Italian to my Italian friends who are kind enough not to laugh too hard at my accent, <laughs> um, I don't accidentally slip into Finnish. Right. Right. Because, but in Finn, but, but, you know, if I don't practice, then all the languages kind of get kind of blobbed together in my head into a box marked foreign. And, you know, being picked up from the taxi at an airport. You know, in in Spain, I might start speaking to the driver in the wrong foreign language. But after a while, when everyone around me is speaking that language, I sort of switch and I don't get them confused because they're different. I would yes and that until, especially the bit to the airport, because I think no matter how experienced you are, when you're traveling so much and you're fatigued, in that particular travel way, all the airports blur into one and you go into your pocket and you're not sure which coin you should be passing out. And you you know, that's the degree of fatigue that they would also have been experienced and practiced in after having done this for many, many years. Now, um, one of the conversations that I and my fellows have had over our explorations in the last 20 years is we can't afford and no one would fund us to be together for 20 years. Um, Right. Although some theatre companies have been very lucky to spend that amount of time with each other, but they certainly don't put on six plays a week and have 40 plays in their heads. So that's the exploration. We've got this new playhouse and we're going to infuse it with Shakespeare. We're going to build bridges with the community and we're going to push the explorations of memory and production further. We're compacting Shakespeare's career into from 20 years down to one. And at the end of it, we'll have a group of actors that have all of Shakespeare's plays in their heads and will have cut closer to a modern version of what it might have been like 400 years ago than I think has ever been done before. That is super cool. Yes. <laughs> and if you need any help with the swords, you just give me a ring. 100%. <laughs> so Ben, when, where can people find you online? Well, if people want to find out more about me, they can do at uh, bencrystal.com. That's uh, B-E-N-C-R-Y-S-T-A-L.com. And I'm also at bencrystal on Twitter. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Ben. It's been a delight talking to you. Likewise, Guy. Look forward to the next one. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Crystal. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And of course, if you want to find the campaign where we are raising money to produce the audiobook, then guywindsor.net forward slash silver will take you there if the campaign is still running. And if the campaign has ended, it will take you somewhere else useful where you can find copies of the audiobook. 
I would also like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Manusha Khorasani, Dr. Manusha Khorasani, no less, who has written well over a hundred articles, academic articles, on Persian martial arts. And he has also written many books, such as Persian Archery and Swordsmanship, The Historical Martial Arts of Iran, and Lexicon of Arms and Armour from Iran. He is also a highly skilled practical martial artist and instructor. Tune in next week. And to make sure you don't miss it, you can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, if you would like to rate it or even review it, that would be marvellous. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.